Mount Olive Lutheran Church, which jointly present the Faith and Life Lecture Series. It's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. Thanks for coming out on a cold evening. Just a word about the flow of the evening after you hear from tonight's speaker. Uh, we'll have a chance to visit with him eventually at the end. Before then, we're going to do a Q&A. So while you're listening to the talk, be thinking about questions you may want to ask him. And we've got a microphone here in the aisle and another one here in the aisle. And you're just welcome to come up at that point and ask him whatever you'd like. The Faith and Life Lecture Series are designed to bring people to the Twin Cities who can help us think about how Christian faith is connected to different dimensions of everyday life. We have heard everything from faith and comic books and faith and humor to faith and questions and faith and lifelong learning. Tonight we are going to hear about faith and salvation, the peculiarity of being saved by Jesus. And to help us think about that is one of our time's most famous theologians and authors and preachers. You read in your bulletin tonight that he was voted one of the top 12 preachers in the English language. Among the other 12, by the way, were Billy Graham. And he's also one of the top two uh, authors, theologians, who are read by mainline Protestant pastors. The other one of those is Henry Nouwen, who happens to be a Catholic. He is a delightful man. We read uh, one of his books this fall at St. Philip the Deacon as a congregation-wide read, and we learned how generous he is in his time. He is a bishop in Alabama, and even with all those demands, he was willing every week to respond to our questions by email. And I know how he wrote so many books, because he is very, very fast. <laughs> he has spent the last few day days here in Minnesota, and he has learned that Minnesota in February is cold. So will you offer a warm welcome to the Reverend Dr. William Willis. designated as like the best place to live in Minnesota. In America? In America. Right, okay, fine. Great. Go, go for it. I, uh, but my heart sank because I thought, wow, I, you know, I got to talk to them about the kingdom of God, and I'm afraid, you know, they're all going to say, well, you know, we live in Plymouth and we don't want to move. We don't want to go anywhere else. We got it good enough here in Plymouth. So uh, I feel sorry for your preachers, but uh, <coughs> Jesus, one of the frequent criticism that dogged Jesus throughout his ministry was this man receives sinners and he eats with them. And when that was said to Jesus in Luke 15, Jesus responds, as he often does, with a series of stories. Uh, which one of you, he said, uh, 
you got 100 sheep, one sheep wanders off. Will you not leave the 99, abandon them in the wilderness, and go look for that one lost sheep? And when you found that sheep, put that sheep on your shoulders like a child, come back, say to your friends, let's party. I found that one lost sheep. Uh, to which your friends say, well, that's great. 70 of the sheep that you abandoned have left. So <laughs> you're now 70 sh sheep short. Uh, which one of you women? You've got 12 coins. You lose one of the coins. Uh, will you not uh, move all of the appliances out in the yard, uh, put all the furniture out in the street, rip up the carpet, and when you've found that coin, will you not run out to your neighbors and say, I found my lost quarter, let's party. <laughs> now, which one of you would not do that? Which one of you fathers? You have two sons. The younger says, Dad, drop dead. Put the will into effect. Uh, will you not give everything to this son? And then he goes off to the big city, he blows it on booze, bad women, he comes uh, dragging back home. Uh, now, which one of you would not say, Harold, you wanted a party? I'll show you a party. Now, now which one of you would not do that? Of course, the answer is nobody would do that. I mean, no sane person would do any of that. That's stupid. You, you treat a, a, a child like that, He's going to think that's okay next weekend, back on the road with the money back there. Uh, that's irresponsible. To which the preacher says, I'm sorry, I, was, I wasn't talking about you. I was talking about God. And I know that you're conditioned to come to church on Sunday morning thinking it's supposed to be about you. But it's hardly ever about you. It's, it's about God. Uh, these are stories that render God's identity. Who is the God we've got? Well, God is, God is the seeking shepherd and the searching woman and uh, the waiting father. And uh, Jesus says, you know, I tell you, heaven goes wild with parties uh, when just one of these sender, sinners comes back. There are no parties given for all of you righteous when you come here. Uh, what, what an image of God. Uh, how this clashes with our modern images of deity, most of us, it has been noted, are, are deists. Uh, most of us are following the faith, uh, such as it was, of people like Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin who found that when you're starting a nation on a godless basis, uh, you, you just can't have very much God roaming around. We, 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 we just, you just can't run things by the Constitution if you've got a God that shows up unannounced and intrudes. Uh, most of us have that kind of deistic view of God. We, we can all agree God is the creator of the world. God created the world, got everything rolling, natural laws, everything's working fine, just thank you, uh, and then retired and left. But Jesus embodies a God that, that, that doesn't keep office hours and wait for the lost to show up, but actively 
goes out and stalks and seeks and saves and finds and then uh, celebrates. Uh, and so right there we, we come to a, we note that here's a definition of salvation. It, and for Christians, salvation is something God does, not something we do. And, and just feel a kind of thrill go down your Lutheran spines because, <laughs> you know, you know how awful it is if you'd ever try to do anything. Uh, so uh, it's, it's grace. It's uh, salvation is a name for whatever God is doing in Jesus Christ. And here is an active God that searches and seeks and saves. God, salvation is God's self-assigned responsibility. And we are the recipients of, of that salvation. And, uh, and, and let us also note that uh, Jesus is criticized uh, for being a savior. Uh, and, and why was that a controversial, conflicted aspect of his work? Uh, well, I, I would submit to you that one reason was Jesus Christ saved people that nobody thought could be saved. Uh, more than that, he, he saved people that nobody wanted saved. Uh, we thought he'd come for, for Israel. He, we thought he'd come for the faithful. Uh, we thought he'd, uh, like starts out there in uh, Luke 4, and uh, he's home from college, and they hand him his student Sunday, and they hand him the scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he reads it, and they said, wow, there's some beautiful words here. And uh, then he begins to interpret, today the scripture is fulfilled. This is the day of the Lord, uh, when the Lord comes for the captives. Well, who's more captive th than we are? We're the heel of Rome on our necks here in Israel. At last, God is answering our prayers and coming for us. But then the preacher says, you know, the last time God came for you, in the prophet Elisha, I think there were a lot of um, sick people in Israel, weren't they? Uh, isn't it curious that God's prophet didn't heal any of them? God only healed a Syrian, a, a Syrian army officer. And surely a Syrian army officer meant the same thing then as it does now in Israel. Yeah, and they, there had to be a lot of hungry women uh, when God's prophet came and, as Elisha uh, during the great famine. Isn't it curious that God didn't feed any of those good Torah-believing Jewish women that just fed this one, this, this foreigner, this pagan woman? And then you know how the congregation's adulation turned to this murderous rage and they carried the preacher out. Uh, Jesus Christ was crucified in great part because he saved the wrong people and thus presented to us a God that we weren't expecting. Uh, we often, as we narrate our lives, listen to us and, and we talk about our spiritual lives 
as something we do. Uh, since I took Jesus into my heart, uh, since I have accepted Jesus as my personal Savior, uh, since I gave my life to Christ, uh, notice the preponderance of the first person singular personal pronoun there. Uh, <laughs> notice anything missing there from those accounts? I, I just don't, I don't think Scripture renders a God that uh, you, you can't give your life to Christ. I mean, he takes it. I mean, he owns it. Uh, you, don't, you don't take Jesus anywhere. He takes you places. And, and the Bible's not a story about our long search for God. Because, you know, as we showed while Moses was over the mountain, we can, we can get us some gods uh, that'll fit us fine uh, there with the golden calf. And uh, it, it's about God's search for us. I'm in a Bible study working through the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, we're in Matthew 20, another parable, the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, although Jesus doesn't give it a title, doesn't give them any titles. Kingdom of heaven is like a man that had some grapes to be harvested. Goes out early morning and hires some laborers to work in the harvest. They go to work. That ought to be the end of the story. But it goes on. A mid-morning, he's back downtown, hires some more workers. And noon, he's back downtown and hires some more people. Middle of the afternoon, hires some people. Come on, work for me. They go to work. One hour before quitting time. You can imagine who's left at the unemployment office one hour before quitting time. People nobody wants to hire on their farm. And he says, hey, come work for me. I'll give everybody the same wage at the end of the day. And there's um, grumbling. There's grumbling about, you know, people that say, you know, we, I've been sitting here through years of dull sermons all my life, and you think this person just wanders in the last minute? You've made equal to me? And um, I asked the students, this was a dormitory Bible study late one night, and I asked the students, I said, now what interests you about this parable? This graduate student said, He's never at the farm. <laughs> and you know, I, I looked at it for the first time and it was true. He's never at the farm. Most of the energy in this story is not given to the uh, harvesting of grapes. It's given to these repeated forays back and forth, back and forth downtown. He's never at the farm. He's some kind of farmer that is more into employment than is into harvesting, and uh, what kind of God is this? Uh, so uh, Jesus saves. That's uh, a kind of unconflicted statement. But it was the way he saved, and to have faith, in, to have Christian faith, is that gift of being able to see that this one that does not respect our boundaries and refuses to respect our definitions of God uh, and, and how a God ought to behave if uh, God is uh, worthy of our worship, uh, that this one is the savior of the world. God so loved the world that he, now wait a minute, God so loved the church that he gave his only begotten son, whoever believes in him, you know, no, 
It, it's this expansiveness that characterizes Christian salvation. It was, it was the expansiveness, I submit, that got Jesus into trouble. He, this is a God that doesn't wait till we come to our senses and get our heads together and wander in, searching for deeper meaning in our lives. No, this is a God that just that comes out, that, that shows up, who's always on the road. Thus, some weeks later, when someone came out of church and said to me, you know, I don't mean to criticize, but I just wasn't fed today in your sermon. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, uh, maybe he's on the road. Uh, <laughs> We've got a lot of problems in Africa. There's stuff going on in Asia. I just guess didn't make it over here this week. Uh, don't come whining to me. Uh, take it up with the Holy Spirit. Uh, what a shocking parable that Matthew 20 is because the vineyard, the vineyard, you know, is a symbol for Israel it, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Israel is God's cherished, cultivated vineyard. But then it evicts a God whose action is outside the vineyard. Well, you can see what a jolt it is. Uh, even though y'all don't believe in Methodist bishops, uh, <laughs> one thing I do as a bishop is I appoint pastors. And uh, I send pastors to churches, whether they want them or not and send them out, send them to these churches. And uh, this pastor was telling me, I can't go to that church. You, you're new here. You don't know. That is one of the most backward areas of the state. In a backward state, I can't go to that church. I can't. My wife will leave me if I go to that church. I can't go over there. Those people are backward and they're racist and they're this, that, and the other. And you know, I said, look, hey, I don't like these people any better than you do, all right? <laughs> but for some weird reason, Jesus Christ loves them to death. And so, you know, go on out there, because he got there before you did anyway, and he's out there, and uh, it's one of the great challenges of worshiping Jesus Christ. I can tell you, and one of my jobs is to receive the credentials of preachers who call it quits. And um, it interests me that I've never had a preacher quit uh, because of Jesus, which you might think they would. You know, that they just come in and say, I can't take it anymore. I can't, the standards are too high and his demands are too great. I just can't work for Jesus anymore. Uh, no, um, you know. The main reason they quit is you, the laity. They, they, they love Jesus. They just do not like Jesus' friends. And, but such has it ever been. This one can't be the Messiah. He can't be God because he eats and drinks with sinners. Uh, well, um, and I think uh, 
our heading is faith and life. And if this is our faith, if our faith is God really looks like that, and God talks like that, and God acts like that, if that's who God truly is, then our faith is in that. And what implications does that have for our lives to be trying to worship, trying to follow that strange a savior? Um, I'd like to just tag a few implications of that faith for this life. Um, I would uh, The first thing I think about is that uh, the test for a church, in a way, is if you're able to look at it and it looks something like the kind of mess that Jesus would gather if Jesus were in charge of the membership. Uh, sometimes I'm asked, what do you miss about your old life at the university? as opposed to your new life uh, as a bureaucrat in the church. And, and I always respond, you know, the main thing I miss about the university is the Office of Undergraduate Admissions. Because they ensured for 20 years while I was at the university that I never ran into anybody on campus who didn't look a lot like me and who had not been as successful as I was in manipulating the educational system to my advantage. And it was just wonderful because we generally agreed on things. We had some minor disagreements, but nothing to get upset about. And they, we just all, uh, it, it was wonderful. But in the Methodist Church, we don't have a functioning membership committee. We, we don't have any office of admissions. We have to take anybody Jesus Christ drags in the door. And that makes it so difficult. It was much easier teaching and being a professor. And in your church, you, you've got to be able to look around on a Sunday morning and see somebody seated down the pew from you. That, that is so strange that you can't think of any psychological, sociological, economic reason that they're there, <laughs> except that you, know, you look down and look at them and all of their oddness and difference from you and say, huh, yeah, I guess, uh, you know, the women were right. He's risen from the dead and it's out harassing the wrong people again and inviting them in here. Uh, and do, do our gatherings look half as expansive as is salvation in Jesus Christ? Uh, I, I think also, you know, it means that this is part of the adventure of being a Christian. And it seems like so often we make this faith a lot less adventurous than Jesus appears to mean it to be. 
And partly, I think, it's because we've got such a uh, low definition of salvation, of, of what Jesus is able to do. Uh, we, we limit salvation to kind of basically nice people who are basically like me and my family and my friends. Uh, I sent a woman to Bangor, Alabama uh, to be the pastor there. And I've uh, been out there a couple of months, so I called her and I said, uh, well, Hilda, how is it? And she said, well, you know, y'all lied to me again. You told me that there was uh, uh, 20 or 30 people here. I got here, 12 people first Sunday. I told them, I said, look, I left a good paying job. I had to go back to school late in life. I have worked on this sermon. I need more than 12 people to, to hear this. And they said, well, uh, population has declined in this county, and this is all the people there are. Okay, well, she said, that week, though, I noticed there were people in Bangor, Alabama. And they were over the railroad tracks out in the piney woods out there. They were these tar paper shacks. And I went out there, and there were families living out there. And I talked to the people, and I said, look, if you will meet me by that light post uh, on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, I will take you to church and I will preach you a good sermon and then I will serve you a good home-cooked meal after church. To my surprise, she said, I was down there Sunday and there were more people. I had to have two uh, times back and forth to church to get all the people in my car, get them back and forth. And she said, I, I'll tell you, uh, we baptized six on profession of faith uh, on Palm Sunday. And I said, you, you had 12, you brought in six, you get the Denman Evangelism Award this year at annual conference. That is tremendous. There's no church in this conference that's had that kind of growth. That's tremendous. Way to go, Hilda. And she said, ah, not so fast, Bishop, because uh, uh, I took in six on Palm Sunday, but by Easter I had, uh, <clears throat> I lost six. And uh, the six I lost were some of my best paying members. And I said, you, you took in six, you lost six, how did that happen? And she said, uh, well, they said, we don't want to go to church with a bunch of crackheads and their kids. And, and I said to her, Hilda, did you explain to them that you and I, we just work for Jesus, we don't, he doesn't give us any say-so over, you know, who we have to receive into his kingdom. We just have to kind of take anybody he drags in the door. Did you explain that to them? And, well, a lot of our churches, by limiting the scope of Jesus' work, are just more boring than they're meant to be. In fact, I think that's a great you know, uh, stimulus for evangelism is you just get tired of being with these people and um, their petty little inconsequential sins. And, and you want to, you know, uh, 
go out and get somebody that's, that's had something interesting happen to them that, that, that Jesus can forgive them for. And, uh, you know, come on. And uh, an implication, too, for our own lives. Um, it is, it's a great, Luther said, it's a great comfort in life and death to, to touch your forehead and say, Baptismatus sum, I'm baptized. It's a great comfort because you know that our God is a jealous God. And our God doesn't like other gods messing with his stuff. And baptism says you belong to him. Uh, well, that's a comfort that is often lacking from the way we practice the faith. I downloaded a sermon off the web uh, from not for 9.95 from a preacher who preaches to a lot more people than I've ever preached to. And the, the title of the sermon, I'm not going to mention the preacher's name, but uh, it was, the title was uh, uh, Purpose Driven Worship. And <laughs> the, the preacher said in this sermon, um, you only get out of worship what you put into it. Hmm. And uh, he said, you have got to come to worship with a receptive heart. Don't just show up on Sunday. You start focusing on Saturday. You start thinking, what needs do I have in my life? What questions do I have that I need answered? And you come with a pencil and paper and so you can take notes. And then when after the service, when you go home for lunch, have everyone at the table share your notes with one another and, and ideas that you got and help that you received in the sermon. And I'm thinking, Rick, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, I'm dealing with Methodists. It's all we can do to get them to drag in the door. They're not going to do homework. They're not going to do. You notice anything missing in that sermon? Like God? I mean, what, what if it is not true that you only get out of worship what you put into it? I bet there are scores of you here that can testify. Thank God. Uh, my worship of God is dependent on my attitude because I got a bad attitude a lot of times when I'm here. <clears throat> that uh, what if worship is what God does? What if it didn't worship until God decides to put something in it? And what if your faith is as St. Paul says it is, a gift, a work of God. That if you can say, I believe Jesus Christ is the salvation of the world, even that is a gift, to be able to say that. Um, and as I said earlier, I, I think we often make the faith, you know, something, that, that's a burden you have. That's my image of Methodist on Sunday morning. We come to church to get our assignment for the week. All right, church, this week, work on your sexism, your racism, and be nice to sales clerks, and uh, come back next week, I'll give you another assignment. You know, no wonder they look tired 
when they drag out of here. Uh, but, but only Jesus saves. I don't save, and you don't save, and that, that's just not something God has given us to do. And uh, that's good news. Because I don't know about you, but I don't always think the right stuff, and I don't always feel the right feelings, and I don't always do the right deeds. But ultimately, and primarily at, at the very inception, it's this is something God does. Uh, and that can be a great blessing. I just beg of you, you know, stay Lutheran, please. We, we, we need that. We, we need people out there that just believe they're <clears throat> sinners and they don't ever get over being sinners and they're kind of worse sinners after they've been in church for years and they, when they started. And uh, that, that just, you know, believes in the devastating grace of God is, is your only hope. Uh, that, that is so un-American. That, that's against everything we believe. Uh, and we need you to bear that witness because it is a life-giving witness. Uh, and, and it is at the heart of, of the message of salvation. And therefore, I, I think we preachers, that we ought to keep teaching congregations that you come here on Sunday morning not to get your assignment and, and not to get some suggestions for better living to help you through the week. Um, you, you, you come here to be with God. And you come here to hear stories about what God's up to. And... Uh, that ultimately is the best thing you can get. Uh, and whether you like it or you don't like it, it's, well, I mean, if this is reality, if this is the way God really is, uh, well, uh, you know, how then should we live? Was it a youth uh, <clears throat> weekend, at the end of the weekend, and they had me there, and it was Saturday night, and throbbing rock band and, and then they had uh, Duffy Robbins who's a professor of youth ministry at Asbury Seminary was their speaker and Robbins came out and read from a <clears throat> text dearly beloved by Lutherans and uh, I, it was before y'all got all focused on sexuality but when you still talked about <laughs> biblical issues and uh, Romans at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Well, I tell you, uh, you might die for a really, really, really righteous person, but he proved his love for us and that he didn't die for any righteous people. He died for the ungodly. He who knew no sin became sin, the righteous for the unrighteous. And uh, he read this, and then he said, Okay, kids, I need you to help me. We're going to have kind of a skit up here. Uh, over to my right is righteousness, okay? This is goodness, holiness, righteousness. And to my left is unrighteousness, sin, evil, bad. And uh, <clears throat> so call your name. I want you to kind of position yourself along this continuum uh, of whether you belong on the righteous or the unrighteous. 
Okay, first, Mother Teresa, come on up here. You, yeah, you, come on up here. And uh, this young woman came over there on the righteousness side. Okay, uh, Martin Luther King Jr., come on up. Teenager went up. Uh, okay, uh, Tilla the Hun. All right, Tilla the Hun goes down to the unrighteous. Okay, Mahatma Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi, come on up. You know, not a Christian, but good enough to be one. And, you know, it's <laughs> over there. A little, a little to the left of Mother Teresa. And uh, Adolf Hitler, come on up. Uh, Joseph Stalin, all right, here. Mao Zedong, come up there. Murdered millions, over there. Uh, and he went through this, and then he said, okay, we got everybody kind of placed the way it makes sense to have them here. All right, next, uh, the last person I want to bring up here is Jesus Christ. All right, who'll be, you, you, come on up here, you're Jesus. Okay. And uh, Jesus uh, comes up and uh, moves over there, and Mother Teresa deferentially moves aside and lets uh, Jesus <laughs> off the scale of righteousness. And, uh, you know, Duffy said, you know, I can tell that many of you are having trouble in school because you don't seem to listen very well, do you? Okay, I'm gonna read this one more time and I want you to really listen this time. And he read from Romans, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That he who knew no sin took on sin, became sin. And as he was reading Romans, Jesus kind of sheepishly moved uh, over from Mother Teresa and all and kind of moved across the stage and by the end of the reading, Jesus was down there, standing there, hanging out with Stalin and Mao and Hitler. Then Robin said, okay, is anybody here tonight with the guts to follow Jesus and, and to stand with him? Anybody willing to like go where he goes, particularly if he goes into a middle school on Monday morning? And, and the kids came forward. Uh, we really have an interesting savior and uh, who constantly enlarges our vision of the expansiveness of God's reach. And the church recovers its own sense of the scandalous adventure of salvation as we focus upon this God that, that is our hope in life and death and hope beyond death. One thing I do as a bishop is uh, I get letters, uh, usually from laity, usually complaining about their pastors. And uh, I got this letter, and the letter said, uh, our pastor has been seen at a bar. And it is not only a bar, it is one of those bars. <laughs> and it, this is just outrageous. And I, th th right down from our church, on the corner beyond our church, th this down there on Saturday nights, it's just a scandal. We don't pay this kind of money for something like this and get this. I was surprised because I'd met the pastor, kind of a sheepish little guy. I thought I called him up. I said, look, I got this, you know, 
lay people. They got this crazy letter that says you're down at a bar on Saturday nights. And, and I said, I, I knew this just couldn't be true. And uh, he said, well, it's not. I'm, I'm actually down there on Thursday and Friday, too. <laughs> and what? You're in a bar three nights a week? How can this be? And he said, look, uh, have you taken a look at our numbers lately? And I said, well, no, not lately. And he said, uh, you ought to do that. Maybe it'll explain something to you. And uh, I said, well, wh wh what, what about your numbers? And he said, uh, this church had not made a new Christian in six years when I arrived here a year and a half ago. Uh, this year, we're on our 12th new Christian. Uh, I tell you, Bishop, uh, you know, nearly all of this growth have, has its origins in conversations in that bar. And Bishop, I promise you this, if you can find a way to keep Jesus Christ out of that bar, I'll stay out of that bar. <laughs> it, it's always a struggle for the church to, to keep up with this outward movement of, of Jesus. Maybe that's why I got a lot of churches that are dying. And if you ask me why they're dying, and I put my finger just on one thing that these dying congregations don't have, that thriving congregations have, it would be this. A kind of inward-outward dynamic. Uh, th that is that that any church that gets confused about the gospel and transforms the church into this sort of club uh, for me and my friends and people I feel comfortable with um, dies. They're just, it, just, it just looks like there's something rather ruthless about the Holy Spirit. That once we trim this thing down and try to contain this and close this off, once ministry becomes reduced to pastoral care and running errands for anxiously affluent people and, uh, and going around and holding hands and soothing people and making me feel better, and I, uh, Jesus just leaves. Uh, that, that there's just, if we're going to worship him, we have to kind of act like him. We have to go with him. The, we have to get out in order to have anything going on within. And it's a great comfort also, ultimately, to know that Jesus saves, to know that he saves only sinners, to know that we've got a God that is just relentlessly salvific, that this God that will just stoop to any stratagem to have his way with you. Uh, I got a friend that defines the gospel in just a couple of sentences, and that is, God is going to get back what belongs to God, and God will do anything to do it. Uh, that works. Uh, but, but what a hope it is, as Luther said. What a hope in life and in death uh, to know that I am owned, that I have been claimed, 
prior to any claim I make on such grace, it, it comes out and claims me. Talking to a man not that long ago in the last stages of a terminal illness. And I had visited him a couple of times, uh, uh, and, and I said to him, um, how are you feeling? Uh, you said that you, you haven't been in that much pain, and I give thanks for that, but how are you feeling kind of emotionally? And he said, well, uh, okay. And I said, you know, that, that fascinates me, because if I were in your situation, I think I would probably be anxious. I'd probably feel fear. Because a lot of people do feel fear uh, at the end. And he said, no, no, I, I haven't felt any fear. And I said, really? Well, tell me about that. Why, why do you think that is? He said, well, I look back on my life with God, and, uh, you know, I just think of all the stunts and the ridiculous moments uh, when God has just sh shown up uninvited. And... Uh, I mean, all the stuff God has pulled, you know, to, to get me. And, um, you know, the way I feel like, I just don't think the God that I have met is going to let a little thing like my dying stump him, okay? <laughs> I just, I fully expect, uh, you know, him to say, uh, okay, I have now stripped you down of all means of resistance. Uh, come on in. Uh, in life and death, in life beyond death, this is our hope. Uh, Jesus saves. Or as that uh, great early theologian, Dun Scotus, said, God became incarnate to save us from our sin. And yet, I believe that even if we had not sinned, Dun Scotus said, even if we had not sinned, I'm sure he would have come for us. There is just something about this God, deep in God's heart, that is determined not to be God alone without you. Thanks be to God. take some questions from William Willeman in a second, but a couple of announcements first. I'll give him a chance to rest your voice. Do you, if you want a, a drink, you can no, get water, drink. by the way. Uh, <clears throat> first announcement is the next event for Faith and Life. This is in your uh, programs is Richard Stearns. Richard Stearns is the president of World Vision, which is one of the world's largest nonprofits. Uh, he's going to be talking about his recent uh, international bestseller, The Whole in the Gospel, and I hope you can join us for that. It, it's uh, Friday, March 18th, here again in the Sanctuary of St. Philip Deacon, 7 o'clock, again, free and open to the public. If you would like uh, me to send you an email reminder about that event, uh, and you don't currently get our emails, you can just fill your name and email out on this green sheet. Uh, it's a very inexpensive and efficient way for us to communicate with you about upcoming events, and you can leave this in one of the baskets uh, in the narthex. That's the room out there. <coughs> And then a word of thanks. Uh, 
from its beginnings eight years ago, these events have always been free and open to the public thanks to the incredible generosity of individuals and organizations. They are listed in your program. I'll just mention some of our corporate partners, Thrive Financial for Lutherans, uh, Productivity Inc., TCF Bank, uh, the St. Philip Deacon Foundation, Leaders Manufacturing, Luther Seminary, Fuzzy Duck Design, and The Bookcase. Uh, we could not do this, and we couldn't invite speakers of Will's caliber and allow you to come free of charge without their generosity. Many of them are here tonight, and I think we owe them a debt of gratitude. So will you please help me thank them? All right, for the next uh, 15 or 20 minutes, if, if there are questions, we'll take them. Again, there's a microphone there, a microphone there, and I'll uh, wander around if, if you don't want to walk up to those uh, to ask our speaker some questions. Uh, I'm curious uh, at a time when pretty much everybody's talking about the uh, dying of death of denominations, uh, why you would choose to become a bishop? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, it, what, the way it felt like was I didn't choose to become a bishop, it chose me. And uh, I questioned the church's judgment, but <laughs> I've always questioned. Uh, you know, I... Uh, I think, you know, my denomination is in precipitous decline and has been for the last uh, 25 years. Uh, but, uh, you know, in a sense, the church has always been a mess, and uh, this is kind of our particular mess. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've, I've the, the best thing about my job, the worst thing about my job, I think, is, you know, kind of administering decline closing colleges, shutting down camps, ending ministries, uh, that, that, uh, closing churches. We close about 20 a year in my conference alone. And uh, that, that's nobody's idea of a good time. I keep telling myself, though, that we do serve a living God who doesn't enjoy uh, uh, location uh, and... Uh, a God who is constantly in motion. Uh, Matthew 28, where Jesus says, okay, people, I'm now ascending to my Father. Let me just give you some final stuff. Uh, you get you some good real estate. And uh, remember, location, location. Uh, when you're working with a bank, tell them you're an Elamosinary organization. That'll help the loan. No, he says, go, get out of here. Uh, just make disciples, baptize, teach. And, uh, and lo, I'm with you always to make darn sure you do it. Uh, I'm watching you. And, uh, you know, that, that's the kind of God we got. So that, that God, you know, appears to have a ministry in a certain way, in a certain place for a season, and then moves on. And uh, that sometimes there's pain in that, but uh, oftentimes great. And the best part about my job is I just get to see 
Jesus pulling off some amazing stuff in little out-of-the-way places you've never heard of, uh, and, and wonderful, sweet people who don't know they're being spectacularly faithful. And that's part of the charm. And, uh, you know, I get to see that. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was out in a little town in Alabama where these retired women and their Methodist church are doing an after-school program for mostly Spanish-speaking children. And uh, so I went out there and talked to them. Most of them are retired school teachers. And uh, just an amazing thing. Uh, they were going to do it one day a week, and then now they're up to five days a week. And it's just amazing. And uh, so I was talking uh, to uh, this woman. I mean, she told me she'd been a Latin teacher uh, before she retired. So I took a couple of steps back. And, um, but I said to her, uh, wow, I, I just think it's wonderful. Have, have you always enjoyed working with marginalized children? She said, who told you I enjoyed working with marginalized children? And I said, well, you, you know, you're here. And she said, uh, uh, this wasn't what I chose to do. This is what I was told to do. She said, did you want to come to Alabama as a bishop? And I said, oh, well, I, I get your point. I, I guess <laughs> it, it, this is the kind of mess you get into when you try to worship Jesus. So um, mainline Protestantism, uh, we were talking about a day at lunch, and someone asked a very similar question to yours. I, I just said, when I get into our churches, I think we're doing fine. Thank you. When I get into seminaries, uh, publishing houses, denominations, all these things that we invented fairly recently in our history, uh, I think they are passing. And I'm not sure what will come, but so, uh, you know, stick with your local church and just that's the primary sphere of God's activity. You're talking about the expansiveness of God, Jesus not respecting our boundaries. I'd be interested to hear uh, your thoughts on how Jesus, or what Jesus is doing beyond the boundaries that uh, humanity has placed between a variety of faiths in the world, and then how that might impact <coughs> our faith and life as hmm. Americans. You know, it, it kind of is hard to think about, say, salvation uh, without also thinking about other faiths and, and all. Um, I think, you know, as a Christian, you, you try not to think about anything except with Jesus. And you, you try to kind of, you know, WWJD, you try to kind of say, I wonder, seeing this, uh, I mean, the nice thing is, I, I kind of like the fact Jesus never got into, like, Buddhism or Islam. I mean, he never made a definitive statement about it. And uh, uh, usually when Jesus was in a bad mood and wanting to beat up on people, it was his own disciples that he gave the most hell to. And that, that's, that's kind of nice uh, to say, you know, judgment begins with God's own house. Um, 
you know, it's just a mystery. I, I do believe Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and not just a part of it, and not just those who know the story and know his name. I believe it's the whole world. Now, I, I, what does that mean for people's ultimate destiny and all? Well, that's kind of God's problem. And, you know, all I can do is testify that, hey, if you're trying to avoid Jesus, <laughs> lots of luck, because... You know, I found him to be really relentless. Uh, but uh, also, I think uh, you, you got to ask, uh, you know, uh, I have just, it's, it's interesting to me. Uh, you go through the Bible, you start out in the garden, and then we blow that, and then uh, God works with us in various stratagems and all, and, you know, and, and you end the Bible in Revelation. And you kind of expect, now we're going to end this story back at the garden. We're, we're going to have a city, a, a new garden. But it isn't a garden. It's a city. It's this teeming metropolis. And then when John looks out there, he said, And behold, around the throne of the Lamb, I saw those who had kept correct doctrine and those who had affirmed the apostles no he said I saw these myriads myriads I saw every creature under heaven was there and he said, wait wait a minute you, you don't mean you think like Jesus died for whales and goldfinches I tell you it was every creature under heaven was out there singing and marching and around the throne and it just myriads and myriads and uh, so our, our vision ends with this teeming expansiveness. Uh, I just know one thing for sure. There's just probably going to be surprises in store for all of us because that's, Jesus loves to shock and surprise. Uh, and, and finally to say, uh, well, well, to say that Jesus is both the biggest problem I've got with my Muslim Jewish, uh, other friends, believers. But he's also, for us, the only answer, the, the only way to know that that person is my brother in Christ. That person doesn't know that yet. And I understand that, but, but I know it, and i got to live like it. And uh, so uh, Carl Bart was asked in a gathering like this, uh, Dr. Bart, uh, do you think that we'll get to see our loved ones in heaven. And he said, I do. I really do. I do. And he said, if I know anything about Jesus, you'll also get to see everybody you hate. <laughs> so, you know. I'm wondering if I could reach the mic. I'm wondering if you have some advice for those of us who uh, really appreciate what you said about um, Jesus wanting to call all of them, whether we like them or not, and what our specific role is when it feels like we've got a pretty good collection of friends here in our neighborhood, and it might be hard for us to identify who really are we being called to go and grab, because if they've already if he's grabbed us all already, where do I find the guidance to know where he wants me to go? Well, it's a, that sounds like a, a kind of a question about discernment of vocation. Uh, 
again, I've been privileged as a pastor, and not a bishop, you know, to, to, to marvel at all of the people that God uses uh, to do some things. I, I think it begins in asking Jesus that question. Uh, where do you want me to go? Uh, what is this boundary that you, you need pushing at, uh, that you need me to push at? Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I thought when I was a university chaplain that I was there as a missionary. And, and to tell people that, uh, you know, George wasn't king, that, but that uh, Jesus was. And, and that, that uh, the university did a lot of good, but it was doing a lot of evil too. And, um, uh, you know, just, I'm just, you kind of witness where God puts you. I think the good thing is, it's kind of an exciting time to be a Christian in that, that this culture that we once thought we owned is now slipping from us and, and is, uh, is no longer even vestigially Christian. Uh, and, and that's kind of a great time to be where you sort of are surprised when you meet another Christian. And uh, one reason I enjoyed college students because they really kind of sense that if you're gonna be a Christian, you're kind of up against something. And that uh, I remember the kid that showed up in my office one day and wanted books on what Presbyterians believe. And I said, why would I have such books? I, I don't care uh, what they believe. That's the trouble you Presbyterians, you're always trying to think about stuff. I just, <laughs> Have a warm feeling. Uh, that's all we want. Um, I said, why are you asking? And he said, well, back in Grand Rapids, nobody ever asked me to explain myself. But I've come here to the university, and people say, you know, so you're a Christian. Huh, are you homophobic? And you know, he said, what? Uh, and he said, I, I got to kind of explain myself. And I thought, wow, that's, it, it's almost like the world is restoring the adventure of following Jesus. Uh, but I, I, I must say that, you know, I'm, I'm almost grateful. I'm in Alabama with a very irresponsible government and uh, <laughs> very poor social services. And so we don't, it, it's just kind of great because you don't have to go wandering around saying, where, where do I go, Honduras uh, for uh, mission? <laughs> You know, they say, it started right here. And I bet, even in Plymouth, uh, there are these, uh, these opportunities. And so I, Well, I didn't think you could take aggressive compliments. I mean, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you know yeah, all right, yeah. If you could also gently point out our blind spots that we have as Lutherans, specifically ELCA Lutherans, since there's a, there's a wide oh, variety wow. of Lutherans, I, uh, and be gentle with us, but things that we maybe don't it recognize It'd be such bad taste for a Methodist to, to point up any problems in the LCA. Um, 
you know, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I, I keep going around saying Lutherans, uh, you know, for, please, uh, for the sake of all of us, uh, be Lutheran, stay Lutheran, and, and do Lutheran stuff. And, uh, and uh, you know, I, I envy Lutherans, because, uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> Martin Luther was just so much more interesting than John Wesley. I mean, you know, <laughs> I just, she, you know, it, it's just very hard to work it up into anything. And, uh, well, uh, but, um, you know, I, I would say, I, I would just ask Lutherans, uh, please, please try to keep uh, certain issues in perspective. Please try to talk about them as Jesus talked about them. And by the way, if Jesus didn't talk about them, forget it. Uh, just you know, <laughs> you know, why talk about them? And uh, and uh, you know, somehow the thought of a Lutheran and Iowa talking about sex—it's just—it's a turnoff. Uh, <laughs> but the uh, but and that may be a criticism, but. Um, <laughs> I love the fact that this kind of radical, and it is so un-Wesleyan, and uh, John Wesley tussled with Lutherans throughout his ministry. Uh, and in fact, one thing he tussled with them on was, you know, Wesley believed in Christian perfection. He believed in full sanctification, that you can grow in grace. You can actually get better than you were when you first met Jesus. And Lutherans just hated that. And they said, no, no, you're a worse sinner. You know, the longer you're in it, the, more, the worse you are. And you never get over it. You're always a sinner. And, uh, and uh, you know, being from South Carolina, I mean, I like that. And I, I was, that, that's true to my experience. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I will say that for all of us kind of liberal mainline Protestants, I, I hope we could see this as an opportunity uh, to, to really assert uh, the glories. Uh, I can forgive Lutherans anything uh, when I worship with you. Uh, I just love Lutheran worship. I don't like it when Lutherans get a little loose and, uh, you know, uh, I, I like your uh, liturgy. Uh, it, it's very odd. It's disarming. I don't know what I'm supposed to do, uh, the, the music, the, the beauty, I mean, just the beauty of, of your churches, uh, I, I think is a kind of witness in a world of plastic and steel and ugliness, and so I, I, I'm not uh, being very critical, but, but, I, but I'm also realizing, you know, it's Minnesota, and y'all don't do well with criticism, I mean, you, you know, it's just, you, you don't, you know, you I can't ever get you to be critical uh, of anybody else, and uh, you know, I always wanted to date somebody from Minnesota when I was dating, because uh, I thought uh, I just a wonderfully generous disposition, and uh, boy, in America right now, don't knock a generous, genteel uh, disposition. Where did Sarah Palin go to school? <laughs> but, I'm just taking that as an argument against my previous statement. But 
well, so, hey, uh, I've enjoyed being with you. I, I cannot believe you're out here on a Friday night. Uh, surely there's more to do in Plymouth. But, uh, but uh, thank you. Once again, you've been wonderfully gracious. And before you walk away, again, we're going to gather out there. You can purchase books and have him sign them if you'd like, but we always give a little uh, gift to our speakers. And I sound like the voice of God now. Um, it's coming through. Yeah. Anyway, thanks for being here. It's a joy to have you. We have a little plaque that says, with thanks to William Bulliman for bringing oh, faith to life. And we do right. thank you. Indeed. Thank you. Thank you.